You're listening to the Science of Everything podcast, episode 97, Plant Structure and Function. I'm your host, James Fodor. So in this episode, we are going to start in on a several episode long series on plants. So uh, in this first part, we're going to look at the basic structure and anatomy of plants, including looking at stems, roots, leaves, merry stems, plant transport, nutrition, sensory systems, and in some later episodes, we'll look at plant reproduction, pollination, fruits, seeds, and different types of plant products, including vegetables and plant fibers and other things like that. No real recommended pre-listening episodes for this one, although if you've got a little bit of background on cells, then that might help. But basically, nothing essential. Also, I wanted to apologize that it's been a few months since the last episode. I've had a few issues in my personal life come up lately that have uh, taken a bit of my time, but never fear, the podcast lives on and we move forward. So, let's get a start on today's episode. So before I get into talking about the anatomy and morphology of plants, I just want to talk a little bit about the main types of plants that we find in the plant kingdom. Now, the basic definition of a plant is that it is a multicellular organism that gets most of its energy through photosynthesis. So plants have chloroplasts. And it's also traditional to define plants as being uh, land-based organisms that photosynthesize, although... There's plenty of room for disagreement around the edges of this definition, so we won't worry too much about that. But uh, the basic idea is that a very important uh, event that occurred in the early history of the evolution of plants is that they adapted from early photosynthetic, basically algae organisms that lived in the oceans and moved on to land. But anyways, so in this series of episodes, we're going to focus on land plants and focus on multicellular organisms. So first of all, there are the green algae. There are about 8,000 different species of these. They're not particularly interesting from our purposes. They are photosynthetic organisms that can live in a diversity of places, including in the oceans. Uh, We're not going to worry too much about them, other than that it's generally thought that land plants evolved from them, as I just said, and um, they're sometimes grouped into the plant kingdom, but not always. Again, I'll just signpost them here. We're not going to focus too much on those. Uh, The next main type of plants, though, that certainly count as plants are non-vascular land plants. These are the biorophytes. There are about 20,000 species of these. They include liverworts, hornworts, and mosses. So the most familiar of these are probably mosses for most people. So these are fairly small plants that look like moss or maybe certain types of grass. Most grass aren't non-vascular, but some of the the non-vascular plants look like grass. Um, And importantly, there's very little distinction between the stem and the leaf in non-vascular plants, and they also have no xylem or phloem. Now, I'll talk a little bit about what those are uh, later on, but uh, xylem and phloem are transport tissues. So, uh, non-vascular plants are distinguished by the fact that they don't have a vascular system. They don't have a specialized uh, tissue structure that transports nutrients and water uh, throughout the plant. It's just transported directly through be- between the cells and the, the interstitial fluid. Uh, so that st- significantly limits the size that the plants can, ob- uh, can obtain, obviously. Just like with animals, in order to have a larger, more complicated, more specialized body, you need to have specialized tissues moving around water and, and nutrients. Uh, so the non-vascular land plants were the first type of land plants to evolve. The next type to evolve were the seedless vascular plants. So seedless vascular plants have a vascular system, obviously, but they don't have seeds. So seedless vascular plants uh, have about 12,000 different species and include club mosses, ferns, and horsetails. So we'll talk about seeds in a later episode when we talk about plant reproduction, but everyone should have at least an intuitive idea about what a seed is. Uh, So seedless vascular plants don't have seeds, so they're less uh, specialized in that sense. Uh, And 
as I said, the most familiar example for a lot of people are ferns. That also means that uh, ferns are not actually trees, because trees probably defined are uh, seed plants. Uh, so ferns are not really trees, although they can sometimes look a bit like trees. So the most developed type of plants, evolutionarily speaking, and the most specialized for life on land, are the seed vascular plants. So they have vascular systems and they have seeds. So most plants are seed plants. They're also called spermatophytes, and there are about 160,000 species. These include the conifers, cycads, and flowering plants. The seed plants are subdivided into two main categories, gymnosperms and angiosperms. Angiosperms are the flowering plants, and they comprise uh, by far the largest number of plant species in terms of things that people are familiar with. So most trees, bushes, flowers, grasses, the, the large majority of plants that people are familiar with are angiosperms, which are, again, vascular seed plants. Gymnosperms are also seed plants, but they're distinct from the angiosperms. The basic characteristic that distinguishes gymnosperms from angiosperms is whether the seed is uh, fully enclosed in, in an ovary or ovules within an ovary. Um, so in gymnosperms, they are not. In angiosperms, the, the seeds are fully enclosed. So gymnosperm essentially means naked seed. And gymnosperms comprise uh, mostly conifers, including cedars, firs, pines, redwoods, yews, spruces, junipers, cypresses, and larches. They're typically the source of softwoods, which are usually used to make paper. They're typically found in cold environments where that get a lot of snow, so, you know, northern Canada and Siberia and so on, although, of course, they, they do grow elsewhere too. They have cones instead of fruits. So all of the flowering plants are angiosperms. They have fruits, and their seeds are enclosed within the ovary structure, which then often gives rise to, well, gives rise to the fruit, whereas gymnosperms have cones and their seeds are not fully enclosed. So that's the main difference between the two. Most plants are angiosperms, in fact, the overwhelming majority of them. A few hundred species of the hundreds of thousands, a couple of hundred thousand total seed plants are gymnosperms. So gymnosperms are important because they are, as I said, the source of a lot of paper and, uh, you know, trees like ferns, pines, redwoods and so on are quite prominent in terms of our understanding exposure to trees, but in terms of the overall diversity of plants, they're, they're quite unusual. Okay, so what we're going to be talking about mostly in this episode are angiosperms. So I'm going to be focusing on flowering plants, and hopefully that should be understandable because the overwhelming majority of plant species that people are familiar with are uh, angiosperms. And they also produce the overwhelming majority of food that the human species eats. Okay, so let's move on and talk a bit about plant anatomy and morphology. Like animals, plants have organs, although it's perhaps less common to think about it in that way, but they do. The organs of plants can be divided into two main types, vegetative and reproductive. So the reproductive organs are quite variable and depend on the type of plant. So for example, in um, gymnosperms, the organ bearing the reproductive structures is called a cone because the seeds are not enclosed, whereas in flowering plants, in angiosperms, the reproductive organs include the flower, the seed, and the fruit. So those are quite variable. We'll talk about those in a future episode. The focus of what I want to talk about here are the vegetative organs of the plant. So these are the roots, the stems, and the leaves. Many fewer systems than uh, animals typically have, um, but nevertheless important that they are structurally distinct. So remember that um, in non-vascular plants, there's little distinction between the different uh, vegetative organs, and the distinctions and specializations become more pronounced in vascular plants than they are in non-vascular plants. So, the plant stems are the structural axes on which 
leaves grow, basically. That's a simple way of thinking about it. So another thing, uh, another way to look at it is that the, the two main structural axes of a plant are both be referred to as shoots. Shoots that are above the ground are called stems, whereas shoots that are below the ground are called roots. So that's not always strictly speaking true because there are exceptions of roots that can grow above the ground and some type of stems that can grow below the ground. But for our purposes, that's a, that's a useful simplification. So basically, when a plant seed grows, it grows in two directions. It grows downwards into the soil and upwards out into the air. The growth upwards out into the air, the ultimate purpose of those is to, is to uh, gather sunlight that's used to produce sugars that allows the plant to grow and increase in size and continue to survive. The shoots that grow below the ground and do not house leaves, uh, their purpose is mainly to gather water and other key nutrients that the plant needs uh, that it can't make for itself, and these are called the roots. So this is the main distinction between stems and roots. It's, it's whether they're above or below ground and their purpose. Stems grow in a modular fashion, which, th- which means they don't grow all at once, but they grow bit by bit in distinct segments. So th- the basic structure of plant stems consists of nodes separated by internodes. So a node is basically like a, a small little region on, on, the, on the plant stem that can give rise to new growth. And specifically, nodes hold leaves. Now, not every node necessarily has to have a leaf on it. The leaf may not have grown yet, or perhaps it fell off, or uh, it was eaten or something. But the basic idea is that, that the purpose of the nodes is to grow a leaf. One node to one leaf, usually. Internodes are the lengths of stem between the nodes that separate out the leaves. Obviously, you can't crowd in the leaves too much, because otherwise they won't have enough access to the light, and the purpose of leaves, of course, is to gather sunlight. So they need to be separated enough, and that's the purpose of the internodes. So the internodes are sort of like the smooth uh, sections of the stems, and the nodes are sort of the, the rough bumps in between the smooth bits where the leaves grow. So that's what we mean by uh, plant stems being modular, because there's this regular internode, node, internode, node structure to them. Now, another important uh, aspect of stem structure is what's called the axillary bud. So axillary buds are embryonic tissues or, or regions of embryonic tissue that it's lo- located, what's called, in the axle of a leaf. So basically just uh, just above where the leaf grows out from the node. And each axillary bud has the potential to form new shoots, which can be specialized as either vegetative shoots, so more stems and branches, or reproductive shoots, flowers. So basically, as the stem is growing, it can either produce leaves, and those form off at the, those bud off at the nodes, or it can sort of divide and branch off into uh, new stems, and that happens at the axillary buds, right? So axillary buds give new stems and also flowers, whereas nodes give rise to leaves. So they're actually growing from, they grow from distinctive uh, anatomical parts of the stem. One key difference between plant organs and animal organs is that plant organs like stems uh, in particular, and also roots, typically grow by elongating. That is, they grow at their ends, uh, and uh, the cells divide at the end in what's called the meristems, which we'll get to talking about in a little bit, and then gradually uh, increase in length and, and thicken and broaden. Now, that's very different to how, say, human arms grow, or legs, or, or most of the other uh, organs, which which essentially fully form in their basic shape and then just get bigger and, and more complex. You know, you your arm doesn't grow from the shoulder out to the elbow and then to the hand. That, that's not how it works. So plants are quite different in that respect. Okay, so that was uh, the first main type of vegetative plant organ, the stems. And that, remember, the basic 
function of the stems is to house all of the leaves and also to transport um, substances between the leaves and the roots. So let's move on to the, the next organ, uh, next main plant organ, which are the roots. So again, in, uh, in botany, roots are the parts of the plant that are normally found underground. You can have above ground roots, but generally they're underground. Its main function is to anchor the plant, so to stop it from falling over or being washed away. That's obviously important. And also to absorb water and other uh, minerals and nutrients found in the soil. The roots also connect up the uh, most outer-lying regions of the roots, where a lot of the absorption takes place, uh, to the central stem region, which then obviously connects it to the to the leaf. So, so it's a little bit like a um, an arterial road system in that, you know, at the, at the very extrema of the stems, you've got the leaves. At the very extrema of the roots, you've got the, the root hairs, which we'll get to in a moment. Um, and it's those places where the action's taking place. At, at the root hairs, you've got most of the absorption of nutrients from the soil. At the leaves, you've got most of the production of the photosynthesis. And you have to connect up the, the, the nutrients and, and water coming from, from each uh, to the other and uh, so essentially they they gradually sort of come together um, in in thicker and thicker stems or roots uh, as they're all sort of directed towards the central trunk of the tree or plant which which then sort of forms a highway connecting all of the uh, leaves to roots so that's obviously a simplification but it's perhaps a helpful analogy the primary root of a plant is called the radical and it's the first organ to appear when the seed germinates so you remember i said when a seed germinates it it grows essentially up and down. Uh, the downwards part is, is the radical. It's the first thing to appear and, and grow downwards into the soil. The deepest observed living root, at least as far as I was able to uncover, was found 60 metres below the ground surface, which is pretty insane if you think about it. Roots can often grow as deep as a tree is high. So if you look at a tall tree... Um, it's not unlikely that its roots go down about as far as the tree is, is tall, which is not too surprising if you think about it, because the tree the tree does have to be stably anchored, and so that's going to require a lot of below ground structure if it's if it goes uh, high above the ground. Most of the plant roots, however, are fairly close to the surface because that's where most of the nutrients and the water is. Now, as I mentioned, most of the actual absorb uh, absorption of the nutrients it occurs at the interface between the roots and the soil, and the surface area is the limiting factor here. So, surface area of the roots is increased, and therefore absorption is facilitated by the existence of what are called root hairs. So these are little outgrowths um, of the, the epidermis, the, the, the sort of edge cells of the root. And um, yeah, they just increase the surface area to help uh, absorption of water and other nutrients with the soil. And because they're long and thin, they can penetrate, uh, sorry, they can penetrate in the spaces between soil particles, which uh, again helps them with absorption. If soil is too tightly packed or it's really dense like clay, then there's very little space between the, the particles and, and um it's very hard, then it can actually be difficult or impossible for, for roots to grow properly. Apart from the hair cells and the sort of cortex, basically the edge tissue surrounding uh, the root, there's another important uh, functional aspect of roots, which is called the root cap. That's on the very end, like the, the, the tip of the root. The root cap is important because it's a sort of a tough section which protects the tip of the root and helps it to push through the soil. So physically, it gives it sort of a ability to push through and, and part the soil particles. It also contains statocysts, which restrict the root to grow so that it grows against gravity. And we'll talk about more of those when we get to um, uh, plant sensory systems. But, but the statocysts there are located in the root cap. Now, I just mentioned the apical meristem, which is sort of just, just behind uh, the root cap. That's the location at the tip of the root 
um, that contains the meristem cells which divide and proliferate so as to facilitate root elongation. And that's directly analogous to the meristems that are found in the um, apical, uh, apical meristem of, of the stems of the, uh, of the plant which, which grow upwards. Some types of plants uh, called dicots have a, a taproot system, which means one large vertical root with many smaller lateral roots coming out of it. Um, other types of plants called monocots have more of a, a mat-like fibrous structure that spreads out uh, below the surface. So, so the architecture of roots can be different depending on the plant. Okay, so that's the second main type of vegetative plant organ, the roots. Now I'll talk about the third main type of vegetative plant organ, which are the leaves. So a leaf is an organ of a vascular plant that is the principal appendage of the stem. So we know that leaves uh, grow out of the stems. And leaves are typically broad, flat, and thin. And the reason for that is because the purpose of leaves is to gather as much sunlight as possible. So uh, shaping them into a broad and flat shape like that helps to maximize their surface area to the sun. Leaves are asymmetric, so the top of a leaf, the part, the side that faces the sun, is different to the bottom of a leaf, which should be familiar if you've really ever looked at leaves before. The basic structure of a leaf is so that there's an epidermis, the upper and lower epidermis, which uh, contains um, waxy cells that help to protect the leaf. Uh, this includes protection from drying out, desiccation, and also protection from, from predators. These cells are mostly transparent, as you would expect, because they don't photosynthesize much themselves, um, but the light still needs to pass through them so that it can reach the photosynthetic cells below. Now, below the epidermis uh, are two layers of parenchyma cells. So, so these types of cells are found throughout plants. They're sort of structural cells for the most part. They, they help to store energy and just sort of keep the, the plant together. But uh, in this case, in the case of leaves, um, they're the main location of the chloroplasts. So in particular, the pallicide cells contain the largest number of chloroplasts per cell. So they're the primary site of photosynthesis in the leaves. There are chloroplasts found elsewhere as well, of course, um, but they're largely found in these pallisade cells in the epidermis. So the critical point there is that to remember that the photosynthetic, the main photosynthetic site in leaves is not at the very surface of the leaf. It's, it's below that, and light passes through the outer surface, the outer protective surface, and into the parenchyma cells underneath, which uh, where the photosynthesis actually occurs. There's also quite a bit of empty space within leaves to allow for the transfer of gases, and we'll talk about that a bit more when we get to aspects of plant transport and nutrition. Leaves have determinate growth, so they're more analogous to animal organs. Uh, as I mentioned before, so animal organs tend to uh, you know, grow a certain amount and reach a, a final size and then stop growing, uh, whereas many other types of plants, including stems and roots, keep growing essentially as long as the organism's alive and they, they elongate so that they don't, there's no final form that they'll attain, they'll just keep growing. Um, so leaves are the exception to that. Leaves have a specific pattern of growth and then they'll grow to their full size and stop and they'll retain that shape. So plants won't grow bigger and bigger and bigger leaves as, as they age. Uh, they'll just grow more and more leaves on their larger stems and with larger roots. The most prominent structural elements of a leaf are the petiole, which is the leaf stalk, and the lamina, which is the blade, the, the, you know, the, the main flat part of the leaf. Okay, so that concludes the discussion of the three major vegetative organs of plants, stems, roots, and leaves. Now I'm going to talk a little bit more about meristems, which are the cells that give rise to plant growth. So I've mentioned these before. There are primary meristems found in the apex, so the end of stems and also roots. And these, these cells divide to 
keep elongating the roots and the stems as the plant grows. There are many other types of Mary stems and sort of different subtypes of them found within plants. I'm not going to go through the full explanation of how all the tissue types are related because it's a little bit complicated and hard to keep in your head without a diagram. However, the most important thing to understand is the distinction between the primary meristems and lateral meristems. So primary meristems, as I said, are found at the apex, the end points of stems and roots, and they, uh, the cells there divide uh, so as to elongate the stems and roots and help grow the plant. When I say that the cells divide, um, the way that works is that these are effectively stem cells. So they are undifferentiated cells that can give rise to a range of different tissue types. And so when these cells divide, at least one way they can divide is by dividing into uh, two different types of cells. Essentially, uh, an initial stem cell will divide into, you know, uh, cell mitosis. Uh, One of the daughter cells will be the same type of cell as the the parent cell, so it'll be a stem cell. But the other type will be a somewhat more uh, differentiated type of cell, depending on what it's differentiating into. And then that cell can further divide and further differentiate. So the point is that as Mary stem cells divide, uh, they maintain an existing population of Mary stems, otherwise the plant wouldn't be able to keep growing. But then they also give rise to new tissues, which which further specialize as, as needed, depending on the plant's growth. So that's how this sort of uh, cell differentiation works. But so we've got the apical meristems, the primary meristems, um, at the ends, at the tips of the roots and the stems, essentially. But there is also another type of meristem called lateral meristems, and these are found basically around the sides of, of stems, uh, at least in certain types of plants. They're not found in all plants. Instead of increasing the length of roots or stems, like primary meristems do, they increase the width or the girth of of the plant stem or root as well. So these are most prominent in trees, well, what we call trees. So trees have to have, in order to count as a tree, uh, a, a plant has to have uh, significant secondary growth from the lateral meristems. And this produces uh, wood and produces a, th- a thickened trunk, which gets wider and wider as the tree gets older. So that, that is the result of a different type of tissue uh, than the elongation of the stems and roots. So this then leads me into a discussion of the different layers of uh, cells in plant stems, uh, particularly trees. So I'm going to focus on the, the layers of tissue in a tree trunk. Um, obviously, this, this this basic structure applies to other stems as well, but it becomes most fully differentiated and reaches its sort of um, a peak form in the structure of a of a mature tree trunk. So, you know, if you imagine looking through the cross section of a tree trunk, and certainly you would have seen that before, you look at it and it's uh, you, you see circular patterns radiating out from the center, with mostly wood in the middle and bark around the edges, basically. that That's uh, the extent of what a, what a layperson sees. So how can we understand what we see here? The first thing to understand is that there are three main tissues that, uh, tissue types that apical meristems, remember that's the meristems on the end of the stems, the cells that are dividing and elongating the stem, three main types of tissues that these divide into, protoderm, procambrian, and ground meristem. The protoderm is the easiest to understand because it gives rise to uh, a tissue called the epidermis. Basically, these are at the very edge of the plant, uh, the very edge of the stem, and they just provide some protection for the cells underneath. Below that is what's called the periderm. So these are layers of cork. When when you hear cork, that's uh, essentially a commercial product that's produced from a particular 
a species of plant. But more generally, other plants have cork as well. It's a type of tissue that's found just at the outer edge of the bark, not the very outermost layer, but, but just, just beneath that. Um, so th- these form the periderm. Again, it's largely a sort of protection. Below the periderm is a sort of a three-layered structure. You've got the phloem, then something called the vascular cambium, and then the xylem. So let's try and unpack that. If you recall before, I talked about transport in plants. Vascular plants with specialized transport structures have specialized tissues called xylem and phloem. I'm going to talk about more about the difference between them later on. But the important thing to note is that they're both produced by a special type of tissue called the vascular cambium. And that that derives from the, the procambium, as you may have expected. So basically, if you think about it as a sort of a, a layered cake, towards the outside is the phloem. Just interior to that is the vascular cambium that gives rise to the phloem. And then interior to that is the xylem. And that also it, um, comes from the vascular cambium. So the vascular cambium sort of is, is um, provides the place w- where the xylem and the phloem grow from, or grow out of, divide from. When we talk about wood, we're actually just talking about secondary xylem tissue. Secondary xylem tissue is produced by the lateral meristems. Remember, those are the ones that increase the girth of the plant. Primary xylem, as well as primary phloem, there's primary and secondary of each, primary xylem is produced by the apical meristem. But as the tree grows and the tree trunk thickens and thickens, the primary xylem and the, and the primary phloem both become quite insignificant compared to the secondary xylem and secondary phloem. Basically, simplifying things a bit, you can think about it as if there's only a certain amount of primary xylem and primary phloem that are produced by the apical meristem because it's, it's, it's elongating. So if I'm thinking about a given section of the tree trunk, the apical meristem starts out near there but then grows further and further away as the tree gets taller and taller. And so there isn't new primary xylem and primary phloem coming into existence. So as the tree trunk gets fatter and fatter, the primary xylem and phloem become not, not very important. So I'm just emphasizing that because you might wonder why we're just talking about the secondary xylem and secondary phloem. Well, basically because the primary ones are insignificant uh, once the, the, the tree trunk uh, grows a significant amount. So we've got the vascular cambium. It's giving rise to the secondary xylem and the secondary phloem. When we look at the tree trunk, the actual, most of the material that we see is just the secondary xylem. So all of those circular rings that you see when you look at the tree, uh, the, the cross-section of a tree trunk, the overwhelming majority of that, if it's a fairly mature tree, is secondary xylem. So it's almost all one type of tissue. What happened to all the other types of tissues, you might ask? Well, at the very center of the tree trunk, you, you might see this sort of circle or pattern of some sort. It's a bit hard to describe. It looks a bit different depending on the tree. But this is called the pith, and this is the, remember the parenchyma cells? These were the sort of uh, structural cells that house the chloroplasts in the leaf. Well, there's parenchyma cells in the, in the center of um, uh, plant stems as well. If you cut a cross-section of a, fa- a fairly new stem, you'll see that it's, um, there's quite a large uh, pith with, with a lot of spongy parenchyma, parenchyma cells there. But as the stem grows, it elongates, and particularly as the secondary uh, meristems give rise to greater and greater girth, the, the pith sort of decreases uh, in, in relative size and importance until it's largely obscured by the, the secondary xylem. 
So in the middle, you've got the pith, which comes from the ground Mary stem, but by the time you, we're talking about a mature tree trunk, it's fairly insignificant and small, so you can only just barely see it at the centre there. Then the overwhelming majority of all of those rings surrounding uh, the centre and radiating outwards, that's the secondary xylem, and that's wood. Just outside of that is the vascular cambium. Remember, that's what gives rise to the secondary xylem and also the secondary phloem, which is what sits just outside of the vascular cambium. And then on top of that uh, is the layers of periderm uh, that I mentioned. That's the cork. And then on top of that, again, is the epidermis. So we've got a very outer, uh, outer layer of epidermis and periderm, so the cork cells. Interior to that, you've got your phloem. Interior to that, you've got your vascular cambium that gives rise to the phloem. Interior to that, again, you've got your secondary xylem, and then that's, that provides most of the structure of, of the tree trunk until you get to the very center, which is the pith. Now, what we talk about is bark. That's basically the layers of periderm and the secondary phloem. So the outer regions, there are different types of bark. There's the, the dead tissue, which is on the very outermost edge of, of the tree. And then interior to that, you've got your secondary phloem. That's the living bark. That's still living tissue. That's softer, but it's still part of the bark. So if you peel away the bark, it's basically the vascular cambium, and interior to that, it's just sort of wood all the way down until the, you get to the pith in the center. So the, the point to take away from this, I know it's quite a complicated structure to describe without being able to see a diagram, and as usual, I'll put some up on the Facebook page. But the basic point is that most of the structure of uh, mature tree trunks, so we're, we're talking about fairly old plant growth here, most of it is secondary xylem, which has uh, derived from the vascular cambium. And then there's just a layer of bark, secondary phloem, plus some periderm and, and epidermis uh, above that. These different types of tissues derive from different types of primary meristem cells, the protoderm, the procambium, and the ground meristem, plus the lateral meristems. Remember, that's the vascular cambium that gives rise to the secondary xylem and the secondary phloem. Okay, so enough on that. That's potentially a bit confusing, but I just wanted to give you a sense of the, the structure that, that's in, inherent to trees and, and the, uh, the different layers of cells that are found in a trunk. Oh, one other thing that I did want to mention before moving on is I mentioned the circular rings that you see in the secondary xylem, in the wood, in tree trunks. The reason for those, uh, these are called the annual growth rings. The reason for these is because the rate at which uh, trees grow, especially the especially the division of the vascular cambium into further phloem and, and, and xylem cells, the rate at which this occurs varies over the course of the year. So basically plants are growing pretty much continually. They slow they typically slow down a lot in winter though and grow more during the summer. So the differing rates of growth give rise to visible structures that you can see in terms of annual rings. So this is used as you probably have heard of to date trees as well because you can actually count them and correlate them across different trees and so on to be able to see how old the tree is. Okay, let's move on and talk about plant transport. So this mostly concerns the vascular tissue, the xylem and the phloem. Because you may not have seen these words written down before, xylem is spelt kind of like xylophoam, it's X-Y-L-E-M, and phloem is spelt P-H-L-O-E-M, just in case you want to look any of those words up. So xylem and phloem. These are the two components of the vascular tissue. Their purpose is to transport fluids and nutrients internally throughout the plant. The basic architecture, as I mentioned before, is that sugars are produced in the leaves as, as, as a result of photosynthesis, using light as a source of energy, whereas water, as well as some other minerals and nutri necessary nutrients, are absorbed in the roots. Now, those have to exchange those 
substances with each other because obviously all of the cells in the plant need both sugar and water in order to survive, uh, plus the other minerals. So water and the other minerals are transported mostly up to the leaves from the roots, whereas sugars are transported mostly down from the leaves, down the stem to the roots. Obviously that's a simplification of the process, but that's the basic idea of what's happening in plant transport. Xylem transports primarily water, transporting it from the roots to the stems and the leaves. Whereas the primary purpose of phloem is to transport soluble organic compounds, so basically sugars, uh, from the photosynthetic parts of the plant, that is the leaves, down to the roots. So, key thing there, xylem transports mostly water, phloem transports mostly sugar. Recall that xylem is the main structural component of tree trunks because it forms the annual growth rings that form the, the majority of, of, the, of the tree trunk there and that gives rise to wood. So wood is basically plant tissue, the purpose of which is to transport water. That kind of makes sense if you think about it because trees are very big. They require a lot of uh, nutrients. They require a lot of water brought up to their leaves and they require a lot of uh, sugar brought down to, to their roots. So most of what the tree trunk's actually doing is facilitating that transport. It's like the big highway of, of the plant, ensuring everything gets to where it needs to go. Now, vascular tissue is highly specialized for its transport function. So cells in vascular tissue are long and slender, uh, generally with essentially holes in the middle. They're, they're basically hollow uh, cylinders that allow transport of um, water and uh, organic soluble compounds, so like sugar, uh, th throughout the plant. And they connect up to each other, sort of like, I mean, if you imagine bamboo, it's a little bit like that. It's not literally like that, obviously, because they're much smaller, and each cell, uh, one cell doesn't extend right from the, the base of the tree up up to the leaves. They, they connect up to each other in, in, in little segments. But um, bamboo stems will give you the basic idea of what it sort of looks like at a microscopic level. In roots vascular tissue form bundles, which is located mostly in the center. So xylem and phloem are located essentially in the center of roots, but they spread outwards, forming either a ring near the edge, not at the very edge, but near the edge of the stems, or in other plants, they're sort of scattered throughout the middle of the stems. Obviously, this is less relevant in the case of, of um, highly differentiated mature secondary growth, like tree trunks that I was talking about, where it's pretty much all of the, the stem is dominated by the secondary xylem. But in uh, less mature stems, um, it's actually most of the, the internal structure of the stem is the, the pith, the, the parenchyma cells that I mentioned, the, the basic structural cells. And you, then you've got the vascular bundles, the xylem and the phloem, uh, interspersed throughout that. So this is important to understand because the the basic structure of plant stems, um, if you look at diagrams and, and think about it sort of in, in terms of the morphology of the different cells, is actually different to how you would sort of naively think about what plants look like if you have a, a tree trunk cross-section in your mind when you're thinking about it. Maybe that's just me. I tend to think in terms of trees. But yeah, so, so tree trunks are actually sort of atypical in that sense. So here's something you might not have thought of before, but the water that plants absorb through the roots is mostly lost via uh, transpiration, uh, essentially evaporation, in the leaves. And I'll explain in a little bit why that happens, but that's the main reason why plants need a lot of water. Uh, it's because they're constantly losing large amounts of water while they're photosynthesizing, and so they've got to replace that somehow, otherwise they dry out. But how does that water get from the ground to the leaves of the tree? 
sometimes that may have to travel many metres, even dozens of metres, in order to reach the full distance? Well, the answer is that it's a combination of factors. Um, basically, the water is pushed upwards by the pressure of the uh, water being uh, crossing the, the barrier, being absorbed through the hair cells into the roots. So it's sort of pushed by the higher pressure of the water down in the roots, and also at the same time pulled by the lower pressure of the uh, water up in the leaves. And the reason for that is because the water is evaporating. There's continual transpiration of water from the leaf stoma, the little holes in the leaves that I'll, I'll talk about in a moment. Um, so the water pressure there is lower than it is uh, down at the roots. And so there's this sort of combination of a pulling and a pushing mechanism which helps the water to, to get up from the roots to the leaves. Another important mechanism that helps in the xylem transport of water is cohesion tension. Basically, this is an intermolecular attractive force between the water molecules and the cell walls of the or the, the edges of the uh, of the xylem cells, the, the the little pipes essentially that the water is climbing up. This tension helps to pull the water up from the roots to the leaves. So by itself, it wouldn't be enough in order to get the water up there, but basically it, it helps to uh, pull the water up by, by giving an, a sort of extra pulling force um, more than you would get uh, if, you, if you just had, say, one very wide pipe. Um, the, the idea is that you keep the pipes that the water is travelling up fairly narrow so that there's a larger surface area for the water to sort of stick on the sides. I mean, it's sort of similar in a vague way to, you know, you see little beads of water stuck on the sides of the, the tap or something like that. That's because water coheres to, to, to certain surfaces and it will just sort of stick there. If you have lots of very thin surfaces, uh, sorry, if you have lots of very thin pipes with large surface area, then that can help to pull the water up. Just like it's easy to drink water through, you drink water through a straw. You have to suck on the straw, that reduces the pressure, and so the... Um, water is sort of pushed outwards by the higher pressure at the base, but also the, the cohesion of the water molecules with the sides helps that process as well. Anyway, so the, the basic point here is that the transport of water from the roots to the leaves is a quite a complicated process, and it's still under active study as to exactly the contribution of all these mechanisms. But the basic idea is that the, lots of the, the lots of thin pipes in, in the, the xylem cells help provide cohesion forces, uh, but the, the main underlying mechanism is higher water pressure at the roots compared to the lower water pressure at the leaves as a result of evaporation, and that leads to the pushing of water upwards. This also then leads to the idea that plants can control the rate of transpiration, thus the rate of water pumping, um, by opening or closing these tiny openings on the lower side of leaves called stoma. So these are on the lower side of the leaves, the side facing away from the sun. Remember that leaves are asymmetrical, the top is different to the bottom. Now the purpose of these holes, the stoma, is to allow the leaves to, to receive uh, carbon dioxide into air pockets inside the leaf. This is essential for photosynthesis because carbon dioxide is the ultimate source of carbon fixation, which then forms the sugar molecules. That's the whole point of photosynthesis, is to form these sugar molecules. So the carbon has to come from somewhere. The energy comes from sunlight, but the actual material that forms the tree, uh, the the, the carbon, uh, comes from the air, carbon dioxide. So that means that the while leaves are photosynthesizing, there must be ready access uh, to, to the outside air, a ready source of carbon dioxide. And so stoma allow that airflow to, uh, to continue, to continue cycling as photosynthesis occurs. However, the problem with that is that air contains water vapor. And furthermore, the 
air pockets. So, so air pockets exist inside the leaf, as, as I mentioned previously. Um, air, po- air pockets exist that help the uh, cells to absorb the uh, carbon dioxide that they need and also pass out the, the oxygen. But because cells exist in an aqueous environment, essentially they're wet, um, there's water inside them and also surrounding them in interstitial fluid. So, so the actual leaf cells are saturated with water. That's how, that's just the way cells are. However, air can absorb water vapor, essentially. This is the, the humidity level. Uh, and so when air comes into contact with these, these, um, water saturated plant cells, it takes up that moisture, which of course removes moisture from the plant. So the basic point here is that in order to gain carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, plants have to lose moisture. They have to lose water. It's it's a trade-off. The more carbon dioxide the plant wants to take up, the wider it can open its stoma, and so, so it gets more air circulation. But then the more air is circulating, the more contact this air is going to have with the water-saturated cells in the inside the leaves, and therefore the uh, more water it's going to lose. There is therefore a trade-off between water loss and the efficiency of photosynthesis. You can have more efficient photosynthesis by pulling in and cycling more carbon dioxide at the expense of losing more water by putting more uh, water into contact with the air and, and uh, therefore carrying out more water. Droughts cause loss of water and hence cause uh, cells to lose their turgor, which, which basically means they, they kind of sag, if you like, and, and that causes leaves to wilt because cell turgor is what gives um, sort of strength and rigidity to the cells and the leaves that they're made up of. So that's why plants wilt when, it's, um, when there's a drought or when they haven't been watered. This will also cause the stoma to close and so reduces the rate of water loss, but also at the, at the cost of reducing the rate of plant growth. Stoma typically are open during the day and close at night. Now, if you think about that, uh, that makes perfect sense because at night time, there's no photosynthesis and therefore there's no point in keeping the stoma open because the point of them is to bring in carbon dioxide for photosynthesis. But if there's no photosynthesis, you don't need extra carbon dioxide. So you'd just be losing water for no good reason. So they typically close at night to conserve water. So, so far I've been talking about xylem transport, which is, remember, uh, mostly transports water. But what about phloem? Phloem sap moves along sieve tubes, which are sort of similar to those found in, in, in xylem, but it's a, a little bit different structurally. And uh, they mainly, their main direction of transport is from the sugar sources to sugar sinks. So sugar sources are obviously the leaves where photosynthesis occurs. Sugar sinks is basically everywhere else in the plant. So everywhere that needs nutrient, uh, that, that needs energy, that needs sugar and where, where growth is occurring, uh, but that doesn't photosynthesize directly. So this is the stems and the roots of the plant. Sometimes sugar is also moved around to storage organs that can be below the ground or in the stem. So these are often found in vegetables, for example, that have uh, uh, storage organs that store lots of sugars underneath the ground. So those ultimately, all of that has come from the leaves and been as a result of photosynthesis and then been stored in, in the organ below the ground. Uh, the way phloem works is essentially that the sucrose, the sugars that's produced in the leaves, is is loaded into the the sieve cell, so loaded into the tubes that that, that carry the phloem, and um, then there's there's just basically bulk flow of of the uh, of the phloem sap. Osmosis will tend to lead to a, a, a gradient whereby the the fluid is pushed towards the sugar sources, and, and the the sugar tends to move away from that and. Will gradually sort of disperse outwards uh, through through the plant. 
I think I've discussed osmosis in one of the previous uh, chemistry episodes, so I won't go through the, the detail here. But, but, but yeah, but the idea here is that the the sugar is produced at particular sites, and water comes from uh, the, the the roots, and so that there's going to be a natural um, tendency because of essentially concentration, moving down concentration gradients for the sugar to move away from its uh, high point of concentration and disperse throughout plant, whereas water will move in the opposite direction uh, to regions where it is in the lowest concentration. And this, this, this process is mediated by, by the phloem and the sieve tubes. Okay, so that concludes the discussion of plant transport. I now want to talk a little bit about plant nutrition. There's obviously a lot more I could say about this, but I just want to cover a few basic points here. So as I said, plants need water, uh, which they need in order to offset the water that's lost uh, during uh, transpiration uh, as part of photosynthesis, and this is critical, otherwise the plant will wilt. Um, they also need water as, as a source of oxygen and hydrogen for forming other organic molecules. And they need carbon dioxide as a source of carbon. So carbon is the basic, well, if you, basic structural element, I guess carbon along with hydrogen, um, the basic structural element of any organic substances, uh, including plants, and it is the, the main ingredient uh, of the uh, sugars and, and other compounds that make up you know, cell walls and uh, many of the other structural elements of cells. So carbon is obtained from the atmosphere, so basically the large majority of the dry weight of, of plants is literally taken out of the air, that's the process called carbon fixation. The carbon is taken out of the air and essentially fixed in organic molecules, which then form the structure of the plant. However, in addition to those sort of key elements of water and carbon, there are a number of other elements and substances that plants also need to grow. So one uh, sort of large class here are what we broadly call fertilizers. In particular, nitrogen. So nitrogen is, is an essential critical component of proteins and nucleic acids, which obviously plants need. However, nitrogen cannot be extracted by plants directly from the air, which you might naively have thought would be a logical source of nitrogen, because about 80% of the air is nitrogen, so why can't plants just use that? After all, they take carbon dioxide from the air, and, or they take the carbon from carbon dioxide out of the air. Trouble is that plants lack the enzyme to do this directly. It's actually hard to split out nitrogen from those uh, N2 molecules that are in the air and get it into a, a biologically usable form. And plants can't do that themselves. So in order for them to gain nitrogen, they have to absorb it in a biologically accessible ionic form from the soil. This is ultimately produced by nitrogen-fixing bacteria that live in the soil. Artificial fertilizers can also contain large portions of nitrogen, and this is why fertilizers are often applied to plants. Basically, it's a source of nitrogen, because this is typically, in most environments, the main limiting factor to plant growth. It's lack of nitrogen. Artificial fertilizers have essentially the same chemicals as natural fertilizers. Uh, again, mostly nitrogen, as well as a wide variety of other minerals and other substances plants need. Um, the main difference between natural and Artificial fertilizers, though, is that artificial fertilizers tend to release their chemical substances much more quickly. And uh, that in itself isn't a problem, except when they're applied in excess quantities or at the wrong time and so on, they're liable to leach out of the soil and pollute nearby rivers and lakes, leading to a process called eutrophication, where there's an excess growth, growth of algae and other plants that you don't actually want, which um, yeah, it can lead to a wide variety of problems for, for ecosystems there. Basically, that's 
excessive fertilizer, excessive nitrogen that's been added on, uh, uh, leached off because it wasn't needed by the plants where it was applied at that particular time, and instead it's promoting an undesirable form of plant growth somewhere else. Essentially, what eutrophication is that there are there are other aspects to that as well, that which maybe we'll discuss in a future episode. Fertilizers are a very important source of nitrogen, but do need to be added uh, carefully. Now, there's another aspect to this. Uh, nitrogen story, which is that in in addition to absorbing natural fertilizers from the soil, like from uh, manure and uh, or decaying plant matter, or artificial fertilizers uh, applied by man, another source of nitrogen for plants are swellings on the roots of legumes. So not all plants have these, but some plants, particularly legumes, have these things called root nodules. And uh, these are locations in the roots that nitrogen-fixing bacteria from the genus Rhizobium live. So they live in these vesicles, that the bacteria themselves actually live in these vesicles formed especially by the plant cells to facilitate um, the mutualistic relationship. So the bacteria literally lives as an independent organism inside the plant. It's sort of like they've got their own hotel set up for them there. And the reason that the plant does this, the reason that they have these special nodules on on the roots, uh, is because these bacteria have that enzyme that's necessary to fix nitrogen from the air and make it into a form usable by the plant. So the plant benefits from this relationship by getting a a better access, uh, more ready access to nitrogen. In return, the bacteria benefits by gaining access to a ready supply of sugars produced by the plant. So it's a win-win. That's what a mutualistic relationship is. This is also why legumes are particularly useful uh, in crop rotation, which is where in the same region of soil at either different times in the year or uh, in successive years, uh, you grow different types of crops because many crops, for example, will deplete the nitrogen in the soil. But then if you grow legumes there one year, um, because of the root nodules, they can actually return nitrogen to the soil and and thereby providing um, a source of nitrogen for future years, uh, for other types of plants to grow in their future years. So that's one of the reasons why legumes are especially useful. So one little final tidbit uh, before moving on from plant nutrition is I just wanted to mention carnivorous plants. So this at first might seem a bit strange because we define plants as being photosynthetic organisms, but some plants in certain environments find it advantageous to derive some part of their energy requirements by consuming small animals, generally insects or small uh, or other types of small arthropods. So the Venus flytrap is the most famously uh, the most famous example of a carnivorous plant, but there are many other types as well. And the basic idea is that the plant will grow some structure which is specially designed to trap or to lure in and then trap a, a small uh, animal, generally an insect or a little spider or something like that. Um, and then they'll be slowly digested by enzymes that the, the plant uh, produces and absorbs its nutrients. These are almost always found in nutrient-poor habitats such as bogs where the soil nutrients are very limiting but there's ready, readily available sunlight and water. So people have done modelling of this so that there are only very limited environments in which it's worthwhile for plants to grow these elaborate structures in order to get the nutrients they need and basically yeah, it tends to happen in bogs. So carnivorous plants aren't very common. I think there are a few hundred species of the hundreds of thousands of plants but yeah, they're an interesting little addition to the plant kingdom. Now, I want to move on and talk about plant sensory systems. So plants are not simply passive entities that just sort of sit there and grow. They actually sense the environment around them in a wide range of ways. Plants are not motile, so they don't move, although 
they can move in certain ways, but they don't move around. Um, however, they still have many important ways of detecting their environment. So I'll, I'll just talk briefly about a few of these. One prominent one is phototropism. So the basic idea here is that plants respond to sunlight, and this is not too surprising. So most plant stems exhibit what's called positive phototropism. That means they grow towards the light. This is mediated in part by a chemical called oxen. So the, the basic idea is it, it seems to move away from sources of light and thereby stimulates growth on the opposite side of the stem to where the sunlight is coming from. So this might be a bit counterintuitive, but if you think about it, if you have a stem that's pointing upwards and the sunlight is shining more from the right-hand side, then what you want to happen is the left side to grow more quickly than the right, because if that happens, the growing left side will sort of stretch outwards and cause the uh, stem to tilt towards the right, because the right side is not growing as fast and it sort of can't keep up. So the whole thing will tilt towards the right. So oxen, by moving away from light, uh, stimulates growth on the opposite side of the stems to where the sunlight comes from and thereby causes bending or tilting uh, towards the light. And so the net effect is a rotation of the growth in the direction of the sunlight. Gravitotropism is a uh, response to uh, of plant growth with respect to the force of gravity. So this I mentioned previously. It's So gravitotropism is found both in stems and in roots. So plant stems tend to grow against the force of gravity, whereas roots grow in the same direction as gravity. So that's how a plant knows whether to grow down or up, depending on whether it's a root or a stem. Uh, this is easy to see if you tilt a plant seed sideways and watch what happens. The roots and the stem will slowly reorient, so they won't just keep growing horizontally. The roots will bend around and grow downwards as they as they sort of should, and the stem will bend around and grow upwards. And that's called gravitotropism. One of the ways plants can sense the direction of gravity is through statoliths, which I mentioned before. These uh, live in the root caps of uh, on the roots. These are dense organelles that store starch. It's thought that they work by um, being denser than the cytoplasm, and so they'll tend to sediment, to deposit in accordance with gravity. And so there will be um, a way for the cell to determine which way is downwards, and this motion can then be detected and uh, signaled by actin fibers within the cell. So basically it's like uh, rocks pushing on a network of, of fibers in, in a lake so that the, the rocks fall downwards and they'll push the fibers around and so that the uh, outside of the cell can sense which direction is downwards. That's a loose analogy, but that's that's sort of what's happening. Another type of plant sensory mechanism is called figmatropism. This refers to differential plant movement as a result of touch. Usually when one side of the plant is touched, it will grow more slowly than the other side. Uh, th this is thought to occur as a result of a activating mechanoreceptors, which, uh, th which um, lead to the opening or closing of ion channels, which can thereby generate signals um, causing plants one side to grow more slowly than the other side. The, the main application or importance of this is that it tends to result in stems that will coil around and cling to the surface that it's touching. Again, it's the same principle, the same basic principle as, as phototropism. If one side of the plant is touching uh, a surface, then if the touching side grows slower, the non-touching side will sort of grow or curve and grow around uh, the surface, thereby causing the plant to cling to the surface and, and sort of coiling the stem around it. Now, another very interesting phenomenon of plants is called rapid plant movement. So, obviously, plants can move. They move in the wind and they grow and they and they grow towards the sun and, and according with gravity. But that takes a long time. And for, apart from that, most people think of plants as sort of static. And as I said, they're not motile. They don't move around. But plants can sometimes move rapidly, or some types of plants can. Um, 
And this is in response to external stimuli and motion that occurs in less than one second. Uh, So we're talking sort of animal speed motion here. A famous example of this is the mimosa plant, where the leaflets fold up when you uh, touch them as a result of electrical signals that cause some of the leaf cells to lose their turgor, which causes essentially the leaves to wilt, although it looks like they're, they're sort of folding up. So plants don't have muscles, so the way that the leaves move here is by the, the cells losing losing turgor, losing the um, basically some of the uh, water flows out, leaving them to sort of wilt and the leaf to sort of collapse in on itself. They'll fold, the leaves will fold back down if left undisturbed for a few minutes. I don't know if it's exactly known why they do this. Um, presumably it's some sort of defense mechanism. Um, but anyway, it's, it's quite remarkable to see. Uh, I'd recommend looking at a video if you uh, haven't seen this before. Uh, one final phenomenon of plants that I wanted to talk about is called photoperiodism. This refers to the ability of plants to detect seasonal changes, either in the length of the day or the length of the night, and those can actually be sensed independently of each other. And some plants require day times, uh, day lengths of a certain amount in, in order to, before they'll flower, or conversely, short enough nights uh, before they'll flower. So this is one mechanism that plants use to detect the time of the year. They can actually detect the length of the sunlight or daylight. And you can actually interfere with this artificially by like turning a, shining a light on the plant, um, even for brief periods during the night, and that disrupts its um, process so that it, it thinks the, the night was shorter than it was, or, or conversely covering them during the day so they think the day was shorter than it was. Some types of plants absolutely require nights or days of a certain length. These are called obligate photoperiodic plants, whereas others don't absolutely require a certain length, but they're just more likely. It's a probabilistic thing. These are called facultative photoperiodic plants. Okay, so that's all I wanted to discuss in this episode. Next time I'll talk more about plant reproduction and plant products, including fruits and vegetables. So um, hopefully you enjoyed this episode and stay tuned for next time. Uh, Remember that you can show your support for the podcast by going on Facebook and typing in the Science of Everything podcast, giving our page a like. You can also send me an email with questions or suggestions or other feedback. My address is fods12 at gmail.com. That's F-O-D-S-1-2 at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time.